Well, I am a huge soccer fan. I've been a huge soccer fan for about 20 years, and so consequently, uh, the World Cup is my favorite sporting event. And what has been really fun about this time around with the Cup is that I've really enjoyed seeing um, all of the people that are sporting jerseys from all over the world. So my family and I just got back from a road trip to Chicago and Northern Virginia, and we watched games all across the country in various bar and grill restaurants and sports bars. And in every single one of them, you could just see everyone um, sporting their favorite jersey um, from a team somewhere in the world. And the thing that I think is so fun about everyone having a jersey on is that it tells a story, right? You see a family and you say, why is that whole family wearing Argentina jerseys? You know, do they come from Argentina? Do they have family there? What's their connection with Argentina? Or, oh, there's a couple walking down the street in German jerseys. Is it because they're German or they just think that team is really great? You know, what's the story behind it? What's the connection to that place, to that country, to those people? See, everyone has a story. And once you hear their story, you understand them much more, right? You are more um, compassionate, more understanding. And sometimes you even become more passionate about the things that they're passionate about because you've connected with their story. Well, today is all about stories, We are in the middle of a three-week series on immigration. Pastor Allen spoke last week, and then KJ will speak again on this issue in another two weeks. And each week will be different in some ways, and we will probably overlap a little bit in some ways as well. But we all know that immigration is a very complicated issue with lots of complex facets to it, right? It involves theology and politics and human beings and security and borders and legal, moral, and economic issues. And we can address it and we can look at this issue from a lot of different angles, right? We could start with the political landscape. We could start with the propositional truths for or against certain dimensions of the immigration issue. But many times we forget that really it's about the stories, the narratives that shape our understanding, the narratives that give us wisdom, that could give us wisdom, that could give us empathy on this topic, And so today I want to tell two stories. The first story begins with a family. And this family lived in a country where they were completely dependent upon agriculture and livestock. They're doing well, they had lots of children, and they're actually fairly wealthy. But what happens is a severe famine hits the area where they live, um, caused by a drought, and it's so severe that their livestock starts to die off. They don't have really good irrigation methods, and so their crops can't grow, and they're struggling to provide food for their family. Their neighbors, the neighboring countries are all affected, and people start to die. Right? They are struggling to survive. So the father of this family hears that the country nearby is doing a little bit better. Right, This country has weathered the drought and the famine a little bit better, and they have food. So the father sends some of his children to that country. He sends his children in order to survive and to try and bring some help back for the rest of the family. And they, they go through the long, slow journey to this country. 
The children arrive, they find food, and they also find that there are opportunities in this place, right? They discover that this might be a place where their whole family can live, where their whole family could survive, possibly even flourish. And so they send back word to the rest of their family and plead with them to come join them in this place. This family takes up residence in this new land. They are immigrants, The family flourishes in this new land. The children have children. Their children have children. This country has become their home. But tensions in this land start to arise because of the drought and the famine. More and more foreigners are coming to this place, and that population of people is growing. And so tensions start to um, arise. The host country gets nervous and puts into place more and more regulations and boundaries on the foreigners. And now this whole community of people who initially took up residence out of desperation now struggle against systems that no longer work, that no longer work very well. Well, you might have caught on to this narrative. It's actually the story of Israel. It's the story of the last few chapters of Genesis and the first chapter of Exodus. It is Jacob, the patriarch's story. His family and his countrymen experience incredible drought, famine, hunger. Their only course of action is to travel to Egypt to try and find food and a better life. In fact, Jacob sends his children to Egypt, and then his entire family immigrates to Egypt. Now, here is one of the most fascinating aspects of this story. God is in it. God seems to have a purpose for his people in this immigrant experience. In Genesis 46, Jacob is wrestling with the decision of whether to take his whole family down to Egypt and live there. And God says to him, I am God. The God of your father, he said, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you into a great nation there. I will go down to Egypt with you, and I will surely bring you back again. And Joseph's own hand will close your eyes. This is a crucial piece of the story of Israel, but we don't often stop and reflect on what their experience was really like. Jacob's family and his descendants were immigrants. They were just like immigrants in our world and in our country today. They faced poverty, hunger, unemployment, despair. And when the drought and famine affected their land, they sought out help, better opportunities, a better life in a neighboring country. And as their family increase and as the generations go by, their people increase in number. And the host country, Egypt, gets really nervous right, and fearful. And that leads to legislation. If you remember the story, Pharaoh gets to the point where he finally um, enacts law that all of the Hebrew baby boys were to be killed in order to keep the population from increasing. Now, we could ask some similar questions about the Israelites, the same similar questions that we might ask about immigrants today. Did they learn Egyptian? We don't know. Did they adopt cultural practices that were Egyptian in nature? Probably some. Did they also hold on to their own faith and their own traditions, their own cultural expressions? Yes, they did. Did they look different? Yes, 
See, this is the first story I want us to wrestle with and to pick apart. There are several truths that I think flow out of this story of Israel as an immigrant nation. And they are all connected with God's purpose in this immigrant experience. What is God doing in this? What's the purpose of Israel having an immigrant experience? The first truth that emerges from the story is that we as God's people are to care for the most vulnerable. We as God's people are to care for the most vulnerable. See, God had a plan. And apparently, part of the plan was to allow his people to become immigrants, to live as foreign people in a foreign land. God tells Jacob to go to Egypt. Don't be afraid to go down to Egypt. Go down to Egypt. I will be with you. Take up residence there. And then he allows them to live there for centuries as immigrants, hundreds of years. Why? Why is this part of the plan? Why is this part of Israel's experience? Why are there hundreds of years of being immigrants? Why is that crucial for the people of God? I wonder if some of it isn't that God wanted the people to experience what it was like to be the other. See, humanity likes to categorize and set people apart who are not the same. We've developed in our sin, I think, the concept of other, whether it be through gender, race, nationality, or, or even more benign things like body shape or interests. There remains someone who is designated or set apart as the other, labeled as the other. Whether we say that or not, right, there are people that become the other for us. So I wonder if it wasn't crucial for Israel to understand exactly what it felt like to be the other, to be the foreigners, to be the ones who were different, because Israel's whole purpose in the world was going to be to be a light to the rest of the world, right? to be a witness to all of the other nations for the sake of the others. The existence of the nation of Israel is for the sake of the nations, the others, so being immigrants in a foreign land, being taken advantage of and treated unjustly might develop in them a compassion for others, an empathy that is far greater than they would have if they didn't have that as a personal experience. Being immigrants becomes an integral part of Israel's identity. And that identity and understanding will follow them over and over in the Old Testament, God reminds them of their identity as immigrants. He refers to them as immigrants. The word that is used in the Old Testament the most and in all of the cases referring to Israel's experience is ger. Right? Now, there are multiple other Hebrew words that can be used for similar situations. There's nokri, there's czar, there's some other kind of minor words. But all of those words are used primarily for someone who is ethnically different or religiously different, and it really takes on more of the um, definition of strange or different. That person is a stranger, meaning strange, right? Different ethnically or religiously, foreign. But ger is not like that. Ger is a totally different thing. Ger means someone who has taken up residence in a foreign land for a time because of a specific crisis. 
because of a crisis in their home country, such as drought or famine or war or um, an epidemic, right, health issues. Gare means a person who is seeking protection, shelter in another country. The understanding of a gare in the Old Testament was a person who had taken up residence in a land not their own for a specific reason. They had need. They were coming out of a crisis. And they had a protected status. Right? The law looked at them as a protected status, needing some kind of protection. Right? That Old Testament understanding is to put them into a different category of people in need of some protection. That's what ger means. Now, the unfortunate thing about this word is that ger never gets translated like that in English. Right? It gets translated as foreigner or stranger or sometimes sojourner, which totally loses the intent of this word. It miscommunicates the intent of this word. Gear is used 92 times in the Old Testament. The first time it's used in Genesis 15, 13, and it's where God is describing what will happen to Abraham's descendants. It says, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers, gare, in a country not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. God has a purpose. He gives them a very tangible experience of being the ones who are other, so that they might develop empathy, a hospitality, once they no longer live in a foreign land, once they're in their own land. Interestingly, the Bible is filled um, with individuals who have immigrant experience. It's not just the nation of Israel, but there are individuals throughout Scripture that God gives this immigrant experience that it is woven into the very uh, fabric of their own lives. Right? We have Abraham. We have Moses. We have Naomi who goes into Moab. We have Ruth who comes back from Moab. We even have Jesus. Even Jesus experiences being a foreigner in a foreign land, fleeing because of the threat of violence. Jesus is an immigrant for a time, and God the Father sends him into this immigrant experience. In Matthew chapter 2, 13 through 15, it says, When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. Sometime later, several years. Now, some of us might be thinking at this point, yes, people moved around in the ancient world, but it wasn't like it is today. There were no clear nations or borders or boundaries or laws about it. I agree that modern immigration is complicated. Modern immigration is complex, and we have to ask questions, right? We have to ask questions of safety and security for our communities, but the ancient world was actually more similar than we might think. The ancient world experienced migrations of people all the time, but there were still clear boundaries. There were still clear kingdoms and borders. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that Egypt took its border security very seriously. 
Scholar James Hoffmeyer in his book, Israel in Egypt, the evidence for the authenticity of the Exodus, he says that Egypt actually tried to maintain control over foreigners. Their, their frontier borders were patrolled by Egyptian forces, and Egypt even used these defensive strategies at the borders to try and prevent infiltration by immigrants. Yet even in the midst of this control and management of borders, foreigners still settled in Egypt, especially in times of crisis, of drought and famine, and God doesn't seem to be all that worried about it. He sends Jacob's family there, and he sends Mary and Joseph and Jesus there centuries later. I know this is really hard to get our minds around in our modern context, but God sends them into that. Throughout the pages of scripture, we see that immigration is part of the story. The patriarchs of our faith were immigrants. The nation of Israel is identified as an immigrant nation, and even Jesus immigrated for some time. As followers of Christ, we have been grafted into Israel. So the history and story of Israel is our spiritual history and story. The story of being immigrants is is part of our spiritual story. And if God wanted Israel to have hundreds of years of experience as the other so that it would develop hospitality and empathy in them, then I wonder if God isn't interested in developing those same characteristics in our lives. It's our spiritual story. But for many of us, immigration is also part of our family story. Unless you are fully Native American, immigration is a part of your story. Now, some of our communities, immigration was not by choice. Immigration was by force. But for many of us, immigration in our ancestors' lives was by choice. They came at some point because of famine, poverty, religious persecution, or the threat of violence. We all have stories of our families immigrating, the stories of their journeys and the stories of when they felt like the other, right? All of our ancestors came with communities that had an other experience. When we forget this part of our story and we forget that our ancestors were others and experienced that, then we lose our ability to empathize, to respond to current immigrants with compassion and hospitality. I know it's very tempting to find differences between our ancestors and our current context. We might even be thinking at this point, you know, it was different. My family came and they came with documents. My family came legally. One of the things that we have to remember and understand is that prior to 1882, there was no illegal immigration because there was no federal immigration law. There was no federal immigration law, so you couldn't have illegal immigration. And even through the Ellis Island system, from 1892 to 1924, 98% of immigrants were admitted with no requirement of a visa. So if our ancestors came to the United States in that time period, they did not face the same things that immigrants face today. 
Please hear me as Pastor Allen asked you to hear him last week. I am not saying that it is okay to break the law. I am not advocating disobedience to the law. I am not even saying that developing hospitality means that we should ignore real questions of security or that we should ignore crime that may occur as some aspect of immigration and the migration of people. I am saying that our immigration law is complicated, it's burdensome, historically it has been capricious, and it's broken. And it is nearly impossible because of cost, time, and bureaucracy for people to immigrate with documentation. And it is also nearly impossible for those in our communities who are tasked with safety and caring about security of our communities, it is nearly impossible for them to do their jobs very well because the system is broken. What I want us to grasp is that over and over, God allows or even sends his people into situations where they are the other. They are foreigners. They are the ones who look different, they speak a different language, and have different cultural traditions. And over and over, God tells Israel why. Because being the other should affect how they treat people around them. Being the other will hopefully develop in God's people an empathy and a commitment to hospitality. And this hospitality has to be lived out in practical ways, caring for the most vulnerable people in the community. We see the idea of caring for the most vulnerable people pretty clearly in Israel's legal codes. Now, the legal codes were a structure of society to reflect God's heart, his character, and his values. The society that God designed and communicated to Israel through the three legal codes, one in Exodus, one in Leviticus, and one in Deuteronomy, was to be unique in the ancient Near East. And one of the things that you see in the legal codes, which I have actually studied for years, strangely enough, is a constant call to protect and extend hospitality. God continually sets forth laws that protected the most vulnerable people in the community. Vulnerability in an agrarian society meant that a person had no land and no support system. So if you're in a society that is utterly dependent upon agriculture and you do not own land, you have no means of providing for your family. You have no means of trading and acquiring the things that you need. And in ancient Israel, women and immigrants couldn't own land. And because they couldn't own land, they were limited in their ability to provide for themselves. They also had limited access to the structures and systems that were the legal system. And they had limited family support. Right? If they had come from another place, they'd left, most likely left the extended family that was crucial in the ancient world to survival. So widows, orphans, and immigrants were all susceptible to oppression, exploitation, and injustice. So over and over in the legal codes, God commands Israel to go above and beyond in taking care of the widow, the orphan, and the immigrant because they were so susceptible, because they didn't have those systems. <coughs> Excuse me, God wanted to make sure they were taken care of. 
There are three classes of people consistently tied together in the Old Testament. It's kind of a, a triad of vulnerable people, right? If you, and if, these are the widows and the orphans and the immigrants, And if you look at the ancient legal codes for all of the other people groups around Israel, you'll discover that many other people groups had similar laws. Other other leaders put into their laws commands about taking care of the vulnerable people, the poor, the widows, the orphans. There are similar legal codes, similar commands. But here is the amazing part of Israel's law. And I think this is one of the most important truths for us this week. Israel is the only ancient people who included the immigrant in the classification of vulnerable people. Only in Israel. Only in Israel's legal codes will you find the immigrant connected with the most vulnerable people in a community. Connected to these people that needed protection hospitality, care, because they were so susceptible. I'm convinced that this is because Israel was to see herself as a nation of immigrants and to remember what it was like to be the other. And therefore, their treatment of the others was to be different. Now, we could go to a lot of places in the legal codes to see this, but I just want to take you to a couple of places where we see how Israel was to go above and beyond in these ways. Exodus 23, 9, do not oppress a foreigner. You yourselves know how it feels to be foreigners, ger, because you were foreigners in Egypt. Israel is not to oppress or exploit foreigners, not to take advantage of them. Leviticus 19, 9, when you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner, the gear, the immigrant. I am the Lord, your God. The Israelites were supposed to be exceptionally generous with what God had given them. And when they harvested their crops, God told them, go over the fields once and leave whatever you didn't get that time, leave it in the field. Go through your vineyard once. Don't pick up every grape that is there. It was a command to harvest only what was needed. This command protected against indulgence, greed, saving up treasures for oneself. Be generous by leaving what was there for others. Leave it for the poor and the immigrant. The gleaning laws are fascinating. They really are. You should spend some time in them at some point. They are fascinating. Um, Because it's a command, they are commands to protect against all of these things that, that work in us and limit generosity. They describe a society where the values were providing for everyone, resisting consumption, and giving dignity to those who were in less fortunate circumstances. The poor and the immigrant were to be provided for, but not to be given just charity. They were given the task of harvesting the gleanings themselves. They had access to the fields. They had access to work. They had an opportunity to participate in the community through gleaning in the fields. Leviticus 19, 33 and 34 
When a foreigner resides among you in your land, when a foreigner resides among you in the land, do not mistreat them. The foreigner residing among you must be treated as your native born. Love them as yourself, for you were foreigners in Egypt. I am the Lord your God. Israel was not just commanded to grudgingly provide for the poor or the immigrants. Loving those who are immigrants goes above and beyond. Loving them like themselves. The command to love. So who are the most vulnerable people in our community? Who are those who are most likely to be exploited, oppressed, taken advantage of? Who are the people who have limited access to our legal system, to decent housing, to higher education, to medical care? Are we not, as God's people, called to love them as ourselves? To make sure that the most vulnerable people in our community are protected, provided for, and treated with hospitality? Another truth that we learn from the story of Israel as a nation is that God intended Israel to see themselves as stewards, not owners. We, as God's people, are stewards, not owners. And that included the land in which Israel lived. Everything Israel had was from the hand of God. They are merely stewards of it. The land, the crops, the wine, the money, their families, it was all to be seen as gifts from God. Leviticus 25:23. The land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine and you reside in the land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land, right? This is God telling Israel how they are to view the land, that it was not theirs, it was his, and they were to merely steward it, right? Israel, everyone in Israel had a piece of land, except the Levites, but everyone had a piece of land, and when you had a piece of land, you had a way of providing, And there were strict laws about what they could and could not do with that land in order to make sure that economic parity remained in the community and to make sure that some people couldn't amass great amounts of wealth and great amounts of land. Strict laws. God is reminding Israel that the land is really his and the way they should view it and treat it is through the eyes of stewards. They are merely holding it. King David understood this. When, there's, when he is dedicating the temple, King David, or um, when he's in midst in raising money for the temple, he reiterates this perspective when he's talking to the people. He says, but who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. We are foreigners and strangers, gare, in your sight, as were all our ancestors. If Israel understood and remembered that everything was truly God's, including the land and what the land produced, then welcoming others into the land, extending hospitality, would be a natural response. But if Israel viewed the land as theirs, as something that they had earned, as something that they were entitled to, then welcoming the immigrant, caring for the poor, allowing others to harvest the gleanings would have been much more challenging. 
I think at times, we as Americans can fall into the temptation of seeing that what we have is the fruits of our work, the outcome of our strong work ethic. We are tempted at times to see that all we have is the just rewards of our exertion or of our investments. Yet as followers of Christ, we are the ones who should view all that we have through the grace of God and for the sake of others. What we have is not just for us. It is for the sake of others. We are foreigners on this earth. We are strangers with our citizenship in heaven. The Apostle Paul says this, makes this point in Philippians 3.20 when he says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. We only steward what blessings God has given us and we are to steward them for the sake of others to extend the kingdom. Our jobs, our money, our families, our citizenship are all gifts from the Lord and we are not entitled to it. We are not more worthy than someone else. We are stewards, not owners. What are the gleanings in our modern context? What's the equivalent of not harvesting to the very edges of your land or not going through your vineyard a second time? I mentioned that I wanted to tell two stories. And my friend and partner at Christ Community International, Vana Inn, um, reminded me about this story a couple of weeks ago and just helped me see it in a, a totally new way. And it's, it's about a man who is walking from one place to the other. And he's either walking from work, home, or from home to work, but either way, it's a, it's a long walk, and on the way, he gets jumped by some other guys, and they beat him up pretty badly, and then they leave him there on the street, pretty close to death. And then a local pastor walks by, and he sees this guy lying on the street. And he looks around, makes sure no one's coming, and then he hurries across the street and walks on. And then a few minutes later, another leader in a nearby church is walking down the street, and he sees this man, bloodied, groaning, obviously incredibly wounded. And he rushes across the street and moves on. A pastor and a leader see this man. They know what has happened, yet their response is to ignore and pass by. Both the pastor and leader approach the situation with the attitude, what is mine is mine, and I will keep it. Both men are concerned about keeping what they already have, their cleanliness, right, um, their reputations. Who is this person? If I'm seen helping this person or with this person, what's that going to do? Their time, their money, their resources. To stop and help this beaten man would require giving up those things. It might require missing whatever's next on the agenda. It would possibly mean using time and money and energy to care for this man. Instead, the pastor and the leader choose to believe that what is mine is mine, and I will keep it. But a member of the community who is the other, 
right, who has been designated and labeled as the other, happens to come down the street. He sees the man, feels awful for him, rushes to him, takes off his shirt, wraps it around the bloody man to stop the bleeding, and then takes him to the hospital. And at the hospital, he makes sure the doctors and the nurses know that this man is to be cared for and treated, and he will foot the bill. The story, of course, is the Good Samaritan, and it's a familiar one. An expert in the law comes to Jesus, asks, how do I inherit eternal life? And Jesus sends him back to the law, and both Jesus and the expert agree that the law commands them to love God with everything they have and to love the neighbor as themselves. But the expert wants to know exactly who he's supposed to show love to, Who is in and who is out? Who is the other? Jesus suggests that the real question is actually not who I should show love to, but do I behave like a neighbor? Do I behave like a neighbor? This story is probably not one you would think of in terms of immigration, but it highlights another truth for us, that we as God's people are to behave like neighbors. Samaritans were the others. They did not have pure ancestry. So they probably looked slightly different. They didn't worship at the right place. They didn't do the right things. They were the others. Jews avoided them. They mistreated them, discriminated against them, considered them outcasts. Yet Jesus chooses the other to represent how a neighbor behaves. The Samaritan stops picks up the man, cares for him, provides for him, protects him, extends hospitality. The Samaritan views life this way. What is mine is yours because it's really God's anyway. What is mine is yours. A neighbor understands that what he has is a gift from God. He doesn't own any of it. What he has is meant to be shared and used for the good of others. So the Samaritan has no trouble offering up his time, his money, his possessions, because he knows it's not really his. The Samaritan is the one that exemplifies being a neighbor. Our community is filled with people who have come here looking for a place to belong, a place to flourish, a place where they can contribute Our community is filled with families who want to love this city and participate in it and in its goodness. I believe that this story reminds us that God wants his people to behave like neighbors towards people who are newcomers to our city. We are taught as children to share what we have. But as we grow up and as we acquire things, as we begin to acquire possessions and status and reputations, we hold tighter and tighter to those things. We are less willing to share. We have our schedule. We have our time. We have our jobs. We have our citizenship. We have our families. We have our education. We believe that we are entitled to those things. They are ours to keep, and so we hold tightly to them. What is mine is mine, and I will keep it. And what this attitude does is it keeps others out. It does not reflect God's heart for protection of the vulnerable, justice for the oppressed, or hospitality for the gare. Imagine if we shared our community, 
our schools, our jobs, our churches. Imagine if we shared our justice. Imagine if we used our access to the institutions and systems in order to change them for the benefit of all of us. Imagine if we received from others in our community, if we received from the gare in our community, if we received a new cultural expression or new rich traditions, if we received new perspectives about Jesus and scripture from our brothers and sisters who are newcomers. Wouldn't it be beautiful if the church was the loudest voice for justice and change? Wouldn't it be beautiful if the church was known for behaving like neighbors and for caring for the most vulnerable people? Wouldn't it be glorious if the church in Greeley was known for being the ones who fought for the vulnerable and changed the broken systems that promoted exploitation? Wouldn't it be like the kingdom of God if the church protected people? extended hospitality, ensured justice, and worked for safety for our whole community? Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So how do we go out the doors today and do any of this? I want to give you some concrete challenges this week, just as Pastor Alan did last week. A great step is to come see the film The Stranger. Uh, It chronicles the stories of three different families and helps you understand their story of immigration and what they faced in the process. We're showing it July 27th at 6 p.m. in the Bel Air. Come watch the movie, eat some popcorn. Secondly, we have cards, 40 days of prayer and scripture study on this issue. One of our our difficulties is that we look at immigration first through a political lens instead of first through a theological lens because we don't know the scriptures. So take a card, spend 40 days reading through the scriptures that talk about the gear, the immigrant. The the Evangelical Immigration Table is an organization that draws together um, evangelical churches and groups and people with a common commitment to immigration reform and dialogue. Um, I invite you to check out their website. They have laid out some principles that uh, we believe in in terms of immigration, not specific legislation. It doesn't call you to get behind specific laws or or, um, policies, but it, it lays out principles that come out of scripture in terms of immigration. And the last thing I challenge you to do is to learn someone's story. Learn a story from someone in our community, just like the story of Yannet and Natalie Gutierrez. They are twins that attend high school here in Greeley. They were born in Houston, Texas. Shortly after that, their parents took them back to their hometown in Mexico. This is their story in their own words. We lived in this village for a long time and studied primary and secondary school. But studying secondary school was not that easy because we lived in the edge of the village in a ranch and they had to take us to school every day, so we kept studying. Our father works in agriculture and we didn't have enough economic resources to buy all we needed for school or gas. And since we have five brothers, it is more difficult to have money for all given that it is only dad who works. 
but my sister and I were always encouraged and always got good grades. After finishing our secondary school, we decided to come to our country, the USA, thanks to the support of our aunt, to keep studying since it would be impossible in Mexico because our father didn't have money and wouldn't keep helping us with our studies. It hurt when we came because we had always been with our mom and we didn't have friends here. We have always thought that if you want to be somebody in your life, you have to suffer. We hope we learn English quickly. We are putting a lot of effort to study and get ahead and not have to struggle in a hard job like our dad's. We miss so much our brothers, Alberto and Alfredo, also twins, our sister, Johanna, and of course, our parents, who unfortunately are in Mexico and don't have the papers nor the resources needed to come. But fortunately, like we said before, my aunt and uncle offered us their house here in the States and are giving us the opportunity to keep studying. We are very thankful for that. We are currently in high school and are doing well in school. The teachers are good people, but some classmates keep bothering us. But anyway, we are trying hard. We hope we see our dreams come true and our family in better life conditions someday. This is just one simple story of someone in our community, in our schools. Learn someone's story. Because as we talked about at the beginning, learning a story helps us to understand, to empathize, to extend hospitality, and to protect. Let's pray. Father, we want to reflect your heart as your people. And you show over and over in your word that your heart is for those who are poor, vulnerable, disenfranchised, outcast. Lord, your heart breaks for them. And so you call your people to extend your hands and your love to them. You call us as your people to extend hospitality, to wrestle with hard issues like this, to be the voice for people in our community who don't have a voice, to work for justice, because it benefits all of us. It benefits our whole community. Lord, I pray that you continue to help us wrestle with this, to open our hearts and our minds, to look deeper into your word, to understand more, to love greater. Lord, we love you. We want to reflect your heart. May we be your witnesses in our community for everyone, but especially those who are labeled as the other. In Jesus' name we pray.